Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby! Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hey y'all, we are back in studio for another episode of Tigris. And today we're gonna do kind of like a follow-on episode to something we talked about a few weeks ago, which is a lot of the anti-Asian hate that's still happening and the lack of conversation about it. And a few weeks ago, I shared just reflections um, on kind of emotions I was feeling even riding the subway after Christina Unali died and you know, it's still something that I'm always thinking about. And I wanted to make sure we continued talking about it on Tigris because just because I'm not talking about it doesn't mean I'm not thinking about it. Um, I also think that I recently connected with my friend Jelena, who moved back to New York and, you know, because she was on an episode last week. Um, But she asked me something of like, well, how are you feeling like safety wise? And I was like, fine. And then she kind of alluded like, oh, you know, like with every all the anti-Asian hate going on. And it was kind of a light bulb moment of like, oh, well, I've been feeling unsafe, but nobody's asked me about it. Like nobody, Mm. nobody's been talking about, like asked me specifically how the news or what's happening in the world is impacting me. And I thought that that was a really powerful moment because I do have other Asian friends, but I think that because it's so overwhelming to think about and we read the news and there are more reports of anti-Asian hate or just like also, you know, sporadic violence against women in the city right now it becomes so overwhelming that we just don't talk about it and I thought that it was just a really powerful moment and I was like okay like Jelena's coming to the studio we definitely have to talk about it so hi Jelena hi uh just for those of our audience who don't like know your ethnic background tell us about Asian identity to you okay my name is Jelena Keenly I'll start with and I'm a filmmaker director um, and I'm 
Chinese, Japanese, and Irish, and I'm sixth generation Chinese um, from the Bay Area, as I think everyone who would be that many generations <laughs> would be from. And my family came over in the 1800s to uh, mine for gold, and then they also worked on the railroad, and then um, in laundromats and at a grocery store. So kind of like the the breadth of the Asian American experience in this country, I feel like. Um, and then my uh, grandparents, actually, both my grand my grandfather and grandma on my mom's side, who is my Chinese side, they both went to UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my grandma dropped out right before she was about to graduate, as many women did at the time, and to support my grandfather. And then he went on to become a professor of theology and study how religion could be used to make social change. And he marched with Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez and was involved in a lot of the um, like radical clergy movements to yeah, bring about change for the people, I guess. And your paternal side, like what generation Japanese are you? Paternal side, I'm first generation Japanese, I guess, because my dad was born in Japan and okay. then he's also half Irish. It's actually crazy how similar I know. our stories are <laughs> because like, I, it's funny too, because sometimes I'll tell other people like, oh, I'm half Japanese and Chinese. And they're like, ooh, a complicated mix, you know, because of like the history of it. And especially because yep. my, like my mom's parents are from Taiwan. And so they're like, oh, you know, Taiwan, Japan have their whole complicated background. Um, and so for those of you, you who don't know my background, I'm also half Chinese and I'm half Japanese. My dad was also born in Japan. My mom was born in the U.S. I'm second generation Chinese American. Um, and, and yeah, I feel like, I mean, when you and I met, I think it was when a lot of conversations around Black Lives Matter were kind of just starting as a social media movement. Mm, Yeah. In 2017. In 2017. And it really wasn't until like 2020 where we started seeing stop Asian hate and all of that. But your activism as an Asian American, I mean, generationally goes back multiple generations with your grandfather, as you mentioned, but also like you and your mom had a radio show and you talked about this. And like, I feel like you growing up in the Bay Area, the conversation around race was a lot more present than what I grew up with. I feel like I grew up with an absence of conversation about race. So can you talk a little bit about like how has your role, your identity and even like activism around your identity played a role in your upbringing and life now? Hmm. That's such a good question. Um, I think I was raised to be proud of being Asian and be proud of my family's history in this country, but also raised with a very clear understanding of injustice and what that means. And I say that because I remember being in college and being in a law class and one of my one of the, my fellow students had discovered about injustice like in that moment. And I was seeing it in real time. And I was like, <laughs> how are you 20? And this is, you're just figuring this out. But it's different, like depending on how you're raised and what you're raised around. And I feel like I was always raised with that understanding of like, things are unfair. Things are unequal. Like um, my grandfather, for instance, he was the the president of his high school and he raised all this money to build this community center um, where he grew up in Madera, which is like in California, uh, outside the Bay Area. And yeah, he raised all this money for it. He was there to like cut the red ribbon thing, like to, to unveil the, the center and it had this swimming pool and he wasn't allowed to swim in the swimming pool because it said no dogs or Chinamen allowed. Wow. Yeah. So... I was raised on those stories and like this understanding of 
we are treated differently in this country. And also I think being sixth generation all through my life, like when that has come out or when I've mentioned that, like white people have responded with like, oh my God, like that's longer than my family has been here. Like you're more American than me. And I think that's really interesting. It exposes a lot about our understanding of like what it means to be American. And I know from, you know, a lot of my indigenous friends that um, white people have told them, go back to where you came from. And it's like, listen, I'm where I came from. Like yeah. it's you, that you maybe should go back. But um, <laughs> I think like our, my experience of being Asian American, I think exposes a lot about how like dominant society sees American as white and therefore has like covered up so much of our history in this country and not just Asian, like everyone's history in this country. Um, but I think because of like my own family history, I grew up with an understanding of that and, and a knowledge of that. And, um, I hope that other people can, can learn about that too. And like you said, my mom and I have a podcast, it's on KPFA and we have talked, we have like interviewed a bunch of Asian leaders and talk about this kind of stuff a lot through like an intergenerational lens of like a, like historical figure leader Mm -hmm. or elder leader. And then someone who's like younger and doing work on the ground too. Yeah. I feel like I similarly, like growing up in the household with my mom, like, I mean, she also is very passionate about you know, social injustice and like that's her work is in systems change now, which is kind of similar to your mom too. (laughs) But I think, I think a key difference like that I find really fascinating when you talk about it is like, I didn't grow up around an Asian community. Like we didn't have extended family, but also like when we talked about racial inequality or we talked about like the marginalization of black communities, like I was growing up in Portland, Oregon, which is the whitest major city in the U.S., where a lot of it was like conceptual, right? It was a lot of like learning about injustice and like feeling microaggressions, but not having it be a topic where we, you know, it was a mainstream idea around me, right? For many of the people in my high school, they were probably more in the camp of like realizing injustice existed in their late teen years So I feel like for me, it was a lot of, you know, learning in my own head and less like real experiential learning. Right. And I, but I do think at the same time, like social media changed a lot of that for me because then when I was 16, I started posting a lot more in social media and like experienced that racism a lot more, but was also exposed to whole new communities and from traveling for work and in the young activist community was connecting with a lot more people who had that experience, which I felt like was honestly, a constant privilege check for me as well, because I think I grew up, you know, and we talked about this previously around like work ethic and a lot of like the model minority myth that I think that for me was like, I don't think I realized how much I, I bought into the model minority myth myself. And I didn't even understand like the history of anti-blackness within the model minority myth, honestly, until very recently. And I think it's something that I look back on kind of with like a lot of embarrassment too, of wishing that I knew more of that history beforehand. But I feel like for me, I'm actually like more still and will always be on this like journey of learning every day about like the impact of my identity. And I think that that's something that I really look up to you in 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 your journey of. And I think that like, I mean, when all of the anti-Asian hate stuff started happening, right? Like, where were you? I mean, first in the States, but like, how was it impacting you and like your emotions and I mean, your safety too? 
Hmm. So I remember February, 2020. I remember February, 2020 and even kind of early March as well. I just started to notice that people started moving away from me on the subway. And I'm kind of ashamed of this reaction now, now that we know how serious it was. But at the time I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Like I finally <laughs> have more space on the subway. Like people aren't all up on me, like telling me to smile, like getting in my face, like, wow. And I remember like one time there was this white mom and she like grabbed her kid and was like, don't like be next to her. And I was like, huh. And then I noticed how COVID was being labeled like the China virus, like Kung flu. But again, in February and early March, I mean, our country was pretty behind. <laughs> like yeah. there wasn't, it wasn't as, um, you know, prominent as it would later become. But I remember the first weekend in March, I went to um, First Friday and that was like my last big outing. That's why it's very yeah. memorable. And I was with some friends and a bunch of them were Asian and we were hanging out and started talking probably because I asked again, like, how are you guys feeling? Yeah. <laughs> are, you feel, are you feeling safe? And everyone had stories of people and mine were the least, um, I don't want to say significant, but mine were the least extreme. How about that? Yeah. The least extreme. Like people had stories of like young kids yelling at them, like white women yelling at them, people throwing things at them. And this is again, pretty early on. Um, and then I remember seeing, um, the New York Times use a picture of Asian people in Queens when they were describing the first case of COVID, which was in Manhattan. And I was like, oh God, this is not going to be good. And then from there, I feel like it just got worse and worse. And I think seeing elders be attacked and um, like elders being attacked, especially when they're just like on their morning walk and in broad daylight and in the Bay area and in New York, like two places that I've always considered home. That was really, really, really hard. And I think, I mean, that's still happening. Like I just saw some tweet this morning that there was four instances of hate crimes against Asian elders this past week in New York. And I think it's just that we're not seeing it as much or it's only us that's seeing it. And the mm -hmm. outside world is not really seeing it and is not recognizing it. And I think that's, it's really painful and it's hard to know what to do with that pain. Yeah. I mean, I think it's for me, it's I similarly like when I talk with my other Asian friends, it's something that we're all really hyper aware of. We all have stories on. But it is like I'll admit that it's not something that I talk about a lot because I think that there's this part of me that almost has like imposter syndrome talking about it. Right. Like and I've experienced this honestly, like on social media where like I've talked about feeling unsafe and people, you know, especially like people who maybe have lived with that feeling of feeling unsafe for a long time. Right. Especially like even some of my black American friends have like, you know, kind of confronted me and been like, okay, but you know, four people who are older Asian people were attacked, but like that happens all the time and has happened all the time in our community, like throughout history. And I think that it's super valid too, but I think it's also been like an exercise, honestly, over the last two years of like trying to really highlight and find solidarity with other marginalized communities, but also being able to be like, how can I get to a place where I can stand up and being like, yo, I feel unsafe. And a lot of my other Asian American women friends feel unsafe, right? And like, yeah. why aren't we talking about it? And how do we do so in a way that's not like alienating ourselves from other, you know, marginalized communities, which by the way, is a factor of white supremacy, right? I, yes, I was just gonna say, I think part of 
healing from model minority myth, healing from colonization's model of divide and conquer is realizing that we don't want everyone to be at the standard of constantly fearing for their safety. We want all of us to feel safe. And it's like a false equivalence to be like, oh, we've always felt this way. So now, you know, get used to it or something like that. And I'm sure they didn't mean it in that way. But I think that's a natural like human response because we've been conditioned under colonialism and under racial capitalism to put like a college word in there, (laughs) but all of these things that are telling us, you know, um, there can only be one that succeeds. There can only be one that's, there can only be one model minority. There can only be one person from that group that's going to make it. But it's like, we all need each other because, you know, it's like, just like that thing of like, build your own table. Like we don't need to be trying to compete with each other to get something that is deemed as valuable by a white supremacist society. Like we can define what we see as valuable and build that together or create that together. But I think, well, I'll just say my political analysis about this like black versus Asian divide, particularly around this issue, is that at 2020, when we had all of the, you know, protests around George Floyd and around Black Lives Matter, and we saw so much progress towards defunding the police, I think that made people in power really, really scared. And so now they're using anti-Asian hate crimes and violence as a way to try and get our community on board with more policing. Like if you go into Chinatown, there is police everywhere. And I think that's been a really interesting and difficult thing in our community to to kind of gather around because, you know, we are not a monolith. Like the term Asian American was created in the 60s. It's pretty recent. Mm -hmm. It was created as a political identity so that we could, you know, join together and, um, you know, have political power together. But there really isn't any such thing as like Asian American, like factually or literally. It's not like we all, you know, have any like certain like shared experiences per se, except maybe racism in this country, which is unfortunate. But I think like, we are being used to try and justify hyper-policing. And in terms of news, like I don't really, you know, watch ABC or like CNN or anything like that. But from the clippets that I have seen, like when these attacks happened and in the Bay Area specifically, because, you know, the Bay Area is the site of so much interracial solidarity. Mm-hmm. So, to, so to see it in the past few years being used as a site to justify the Asian community co- coming to support hyper-policing, which we know has horrible ramifications for the Black community and for, I mean, honestly, all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, on the news, it would constantly be photos of the Black perpetrators of these hate crimes. And if you look at the numbers, actually, like, if there are more white people that have committed these hate crimes, but when it comes to the faces that are being shown in the news, that's not represented. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's been a really strategic tactic to try and get our community on board with hyper-policing to, and pit us against the black community and make it seem like, oh, it's one against the other. When in reality, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance? Of course you would. After all, who wouldn't love a great deal, right? And when it comes to great rates on insurance for all of the things in your life, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners, condo, or renters coverage. You could save even more with a special discount when you bundle your coverages. Plus, add the easy-to-use Geico mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more. And choosing to switch to Geico becomes an easy choice. Switch to 
today and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This show is part of the pro-democracy podcast coalition. I think most of us agree that in a functioning democracy, the winner should be determined by the voters. Well, that almost didn't happen in 2020. Now extremists are working to intimidate and replace nonpartisan election workers with quote unquote, yes men who might reject election results. The only thing that will stop them is us. We partnered with the grassroots pro-democracy organization, Represent Us, to give you the tools you need to protect free and fair elections. Learn more and get involved. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. And I mean, I think that you also, if you're open to sharing, like this is something that came up with your former therapist too. Yeah. (laughs) So sad because I finally had an Asian woman therapist. I was paying like a lot, which, you know, for me is a big deal. It's a big deal. Like I was paying out of pocket. Like this was not in network. And I had explained, I mean, you know, I have so much trauma. Like I had spent so long explaining all my trauma to her. Yeah. And we had worked together for a while and if I'm being honest, there were some orange flags like along the way. Maybe they were like crimson. Maybe they're a little bit red that I probably should have like realized yeah. earlier. Like when I told her about my family stuff, she was like, wow, that sounds like a movie. <laughs> oh, so I think there, there were some earlier signs. Yeah. But I remember it was our session in May of 2020, right after um, the Atlanta shootings. And of course, it's something that I wanted to talk about because it was impacting me so much. May of 2021. Was that 2020? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, 2021. <laughs> oh, my God. It's crazy. My timeline is so messed up. Yeah. Okay, May of 2021. Um, yeah, okay, that makes sense because I was yeah, seeing her in 2021. Um, and she is Asian woman therapist from the Bay Area. And I know that her clientele is also pretty much all Asian women or femmes. And so I, I figured, you know, this is probably something that she's talking about, like in a lot of her sessions, yeah. but it's something that's impacting us. And she said, you know, we were talking about different things. I can't remember exactly what it was um, that I said, but she said, um, I, I was saying something about like white supremacy or, you know, in the, like how upsetting this was in a lens of white supremacy. And she was like, oh, but isn't it mostly like black people doing these um, crimes? Like, why do you think they hate us so much? And I was like, speechless. I was like, not in my session. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I did, I explained to her, I was like, listen, like last year we saw so much progress with defunding the police and that made the white supremacist powers that be afraid that they're, u- so now they're using us to put everything I just said, basically. Yeah. And she was like, oh, wow, I haven't heard that before. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> jaw drop. I was like, it's deeply concerning to me that you haven't like within that, in the spaces that she was in, that this hadn't been talked about or hadn't, you know, been discussed um so yeah I broke up with her but also especially because I think that like I mean I've never been physically attacked for my race in the last couple years but I've been yelled at by many strangers and similar experiences like on the subway of like comments or you know sometimes I have a dry throat and I cough on the subway and people freak out more than they would if it was like a white friend of mine and like it does even just reading on the news, as you said, it's so emotional. Right. And so I think especially with the therapist relationship, you need someone who's going to understand that. And I remember when you told me this, I was like, I would have been so mad too. Like I just paid you, you know, three figures (laughs) to then explain to you and educate you on an issue that's like deeply troubling to me. So like, 
very much a deal breaker from a therapist relationship. I also think that, you know, on Black and Asian solidarity, that's something that I think has been erased from a lot of our history lessons, right? And I kind of want to let sh shed light to like the t-shirt you're wearing right now as well. Um, because, you know, when Black Lives Matter, even as like a digital awareness movement in 2020 started coming to light, I got a lot of comments and like honestly a lot of pushback from, you know, followers of mine, many of whom were honestly white people who were like, why are you sharing about this? rather than just like sharing someone a post from like a black activist, right? And I feel like there, it similarly is something that I on it turned a lot of self-reflection on me, which is like, what is my role as an Asian American, like in solidarity, recognizing, recognizing the model minority myth, but also like wanting to contribute, right? Like as someone with a platform, feeling the um, responsibility to contribute. And I think that that's a question that anybody with a platform was thinking about, right? There's the whole debate on performative versus you know, very real grassroots organizing and activism. It was the past the mic, you know, campaigns that were happening with celebrities, which is you have a platform, what do you do with it? And I do think it's, it, it really brought to light with Black Lives Matter, the policing debate, but also like anti-Asian hate being on the absolute skyrocketing rise to be like, what is the solidarity here? And again, unfortunately, very recently, because I never learned about it in school, was learning about the figures like Grace Lee Boggs and you know you're not, the, every all of these Asian especially women organizers who I had honestly never learned about and so when people were starting to point out like your therapist did right a lot of this like you know black and Asian animosity there the stuff that I think is not talked about is the history of the solidarity around it and even with your grandfather like and as you said like the term Asian American was created as in a political movement specifically for interracial solidarity too right yeah. and like that is not really talked about in history that we learn in school like when we talk about Malcolm X right or like these people we don't talk about the Asian woman in that photo when Yuri Kochiyama yeah. yeah so like I think that the history of solidarity is not really something we talk about either, right? And I don't know. I just think that the more I talk to, like, other, especially Asian, like, public figures who have platforms, like, we've all been discussing this for the last two years, which is, like, how do we talk about the stuff that's happening around South Asian hate in conjunction with everything that's happening with Black Lives Matter right now? And, like, what is our responsibility and how do we create this culture of solidarity, right? I mean, this is something that you are very well aware of. And maybe you can talk a little bit about, like, who the people are on your shirt. Oh, <laughs> dang, I should have done some research. Um, okay, I can definitely do that. Yeah. And then I also think, like, in terms of the Stop Asian Hate and how can we, you know, talk about that without kind of helping this um, idea that we need more policing is, I think, talking about the things that actually help us feel safe. Mm. And for me, that has never been police. And I think, you know, we see all the different violence that police are inflicting um, out in the streets, like out so publicly. We also see, I feel like I see, I never see police officers wearing masks, which is very like troubling and confusing. And then also police have some of the highest rates of domestic violence. So they're mm -hmm. also perpetrating a lot of violence like within their own homes. Um, so that personally has not made me feel safe, but I know there is Safe Walks New York, mm -hmm. uh, this organization that you can like call and text to get um, a walk home. So I think it's like 
talking about these incidents of violence, but then also talking about what we can do to make each other feel safe. Mm -hmm. And even just the little practices of like, text me when you get home, like sharing your location with friends, like all these little things. It's like just showing that, you know, that, that, um, that phrase that people say at a lot of like rallies and different activist events of we keep us safe, but it's true. Like we are the ones that keep us safe. And so I think when it comes to anti-Asian hate crimes, it's just this thing of like, I think sometimes when it's not talked about it at all, it makes us, it makes me, I'll just say, it makes me wonder, like if something happens to me, is anyone going to talk about it? Like, Mm. is it going to like mean anything? Is it going to do anything? Like if someone pushes me on the subway or if someone slaps me or yells at me or anything like that, like, is anyone else going to say anything? Like, is anyone else going to step in? So I think for me, it's like, you know, when I talk about anti-Asian hate or these kind of things, it's not to say, oh, I want there to be more police around. It's to say, I want my community of people that are around me to be aware of what's going on and to be aware of the kind of precautions that we feel like we have to take. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess I've been asking this question of like, how safe are you feeling to a lot of my Asian friends? And I didn't realize that it was something that other people weren't talking about. No one's asked me that until you. Until you you just said that. That's surprising to me. I think that's, maybe that's also a practice that we can all introduce more regardless of, our friend's race or regardless of, you know, what thing is happening in the news, but just checking in about safety and how people are feeling. Because if the question isn't asked, we're not going to talk about it. I think that's like maybe a cultural thing a little bit, Mm. but from friends, I've heard like people are afraid to wear the clothes that they would normally wear to, um, look Asian, whatever that means. People are going, refuse to walk at night at all, wearing sunglasses and a mask. Some people were even saying that they're dyeing their hair, like a lighter color or like trying to have a blonde wig or something like that. So I think the fear is very present out there and it's just like up to us to ask and kind of open the doors to have those kind of conversations. Um, but my shirt, okay. I was just, I was like, it's hard to read from this angle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So the first one is Grace, which is for Grace Lee Boggs, who's a really incredible activist who's based in Detroit. I encourage everyone to to look her up. Um, There's some great documentaries about her too. Yes. Great documentary about her. And she's just such a like powerful speaker, a very no bullshit elder, which I mean, I think we aspire to be. Yeah. (laughs) Um, the next is Helen Zia. Uh, she's a lawyer and activist and advocate. Um, and she was the lawyer in Vincent Chin's case, Mm -hmm. um, which is like a really landmark case in Asian American movement stuff. I don't know. I also think Vincent Chin, uh, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but you know, he was an Asian man who was beaten by two white men and those white men like were not given accountability like punishment because they like quote the judge said something like they didn't seem like the type of guys yeah to do something like that and the Vincent Chin case for those of you who are listening like I think that that's one that's been highlighted a lot more publicly in the last couple years because with anti-Asian hate a lot of the discourse around anti-Asian hate was oh this is so new right like this is just happening because of China you know China virus you know kung flu And I think that in many ways, like it is new in terms of like how much it's growing and at these rates and how like it is more public than it has been. But anti-Asian discrimination is not new in this country. Yeah. And hate crimes are not new for anyone in this country. And um, 
I think at, at that time and same with this time, it was tied to a lot of economic anxiety and it was kind of, you know, the white supremacist system at B pointing the finger of these people are the reason that you don't have a job. These people are the reason. And in the Vincent Chin case, you know, he's Chinese, but he was actually, they were angry at Japanese and they were yeah. calling him slurs for being Japanese. So I think that's also something that comes up a lot in anti-Asian racism of like, you might not even be the race that they're yeah. intending to target. Like it doesn't really matter. It's just how you, how you're passing in the world. And I mean, that's been something that's happened literally throughout the 20th century itself. Right. Where like there was the, you know, a lot of anti-Japanese rhetoric. And so a lot of Korean and Chinese Americans, I remember like the images are insane, right? Like wearing badges or stickers that say like, I am Chinese, like I'm Korean, literally to ward off anti-Japanese hate. Right? Yes, that my, when my my grandma, her family, they had a grocery store and they had to have signs that were like, we are not Japanese, we are yeah. Chinese. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you talked about like uh, being Chinese and Japanese and how that's yeah. like quite the divide too. And I think, you know, at that time of World War II, Jap like <laughs> Japan was doing a lot of horrible things to yeah. China and to Korea. And that was having an impact on people that were in the States. Well, so and it goes back to like Asian American being such a broad term that kind of like means everything and nothing at all, because mm -hmm. it's like, we all have this one term. And then, but at the same time, like talk about how white supremacy, like fosters like self doubt and self hatred as an Asian American, right. Is like, I'm, a, I'm identified with a term that one doesn't really have like a solid meaning or like solid sense of identity linked to like real ethnicity and history. But there's a lot of animosity like within the Asian American community or, you know, that is being worked through. Right. And maybe it's not animosity, but it's like white supremacy creating divides within this community, too. Yeah. And generational trauma, because it's yeah. also like from from wars, from, you know, Japan being an imperialist force and yeah. like doing Horrible things, horrible to, things, like horrible, unspeakable things yeah. to, to other other countries. And then, yeah, it's just hard because, you know, Japan doing that, it shouldn't mean that Japanese Americans are like being incarcerated. And in yeah. that time, you know, Japanese people from Peru, from other parts of South America, from Hawaii were also being like kidnapped to the United States to be incarcerated as well. And then when they got out of incarceration, they had no citizenship. Mm. So uh, it's very complex. So much. There's a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> lot next say. name on your shirt, Yuri. Okay. Next name, Yuri, who's Yuri Kochiyama. Um, and she was really close with Malcolm X. She was a prolific leader and speaker. And um, I had the privilege of like hearing her speak a few times before she passed away because um, she was based in the Bay Area. So she would come to like the different events and she was extremely against war mm -hmm. and extremely ahead of her time. So I would encourage everyone to you know, to look her up, to look up all these people. And I think it's just such an important reminder that I think sometimes um, living in the present day and um, having ideas around activism that are changing, it's like we get the, we get the, or we're told sometimes that like, oh, these are new, like these are new concepts, like, um, and especially around like white leaders of like, oh, it's just because of their generation. Like mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. the time, like it's just the time that they were born in, you know, but we actually have elders that were born in that time and we're not thinking those things and had really um, incredible insight and also putting it, it. They weren't just writing about it in books like they were putting these words and these ideas to practice in their everyday lives and having um, incredible solidarity movements with the black community, with a bunch of different communities. Yeah. 
I think as I've been on my own like academic journey of like dismantling, honestly, a lot of like white supremacist patterns in myself, Mm. um, like learning about Yuri Kochiyama, which is honestly a name that I had not heard of before like 2020 Mm. is um, like it's really made me realize like how much like white supremacy is perpetuated within schools and education by hiding the narratives around like black and Asian solidarity And I remember being fucking mind blown. Um, I was watching this documentary, I forget which one, where it talks about like the, just like the impact people like Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kochiyama had in the racial justice movement and even on like, like desegregation and all of that. And I remember seeing the image of, you know, Malcolm X after he was shot on the ground with um, a woman's hands holding his head. And I remember growing up with that image, right? Like, learning about it multiple years in class and all of that. And then I remember watching this documentary specifically where it says like, well, if you zoom out in that picture, Yuri's face is in that photo and she's the woman holding his head. And like, again, how closely she worked with him and how people like Grace Lee Boggs and Yuri Kochiyama like played such a significant part in those movements of like creating that solidarity, like using even their own, like Grace Lee Boggs, you know, wrote incredible books and incredible, incredible books and was like an incredible, even academic thought leader around racial justice. And I think that like, I, I think a lot in reflecting on like my own education of like how meaningful it would have been to learn about black and Asian solidarity throughout my own schooling. And just as your therapist brought up, right? Like (laughs) the fact that we have grown adults still asking about like, oh, why do black people hate us? Or like, I mean, my grandparents, my Chinese grandparents are like racist. They're very racist against black people. And I think a lot of it is kind of bottom, you know, they came over here during the Chinese Exclusion Act and like they're Trump supporters who like believe that, you know, Mexican immigrants should have to go through the same academic hoops that they did or they believe that like they're scared of black people. And like, I think that I think of if I had the education or if they had the education or like grown adults in the Asian community or like even in the black community, in all of our community in the white, like every community had about the like incredible history of black and Asian solidarity, the amount of a difference that that would make, I think would be so significant. Yeah. And this is why storytelling is so important like to me specifically but I think also for the world and filmmaking and having you know people like me or you know (laughs) just people that are not the the norm of what we're used to seeing in the positions to tell stories and to be the one quite literally framing the image yeah because the way something is framed makes such a huge impact like imagine if you had grown up with like the full image Mm -hmm. of that and seeing Yuri Kochiyama there and knowing that you know someone who represents part of you has always been part of this movement and has always been you know a great supporter and um Another thing that makes me think of is the Third World Liberation Front, which Mm -hmm. is a really inspiring movement that I love, um, which was at San Francisco State. And that was a coalition of um, Latinx students, Asian American students. This is also the time that the that the term Asian American was coined, and um, Black students. I can't remember. It was like Black Liberation something. I'm not sure the exact uh, wording, but all of these different students joining together to fight for ethnic studies at San Francisco State, and it was a bloody fight. Mm-hmm. Like the the college brought in police with batons, and they were beating people up. There was hunger strikes. Like it went on for a really long time. And this was all to exactly your point to get 
studies like this put into classrooms and to be sure that um, people can learn about this. And I think we're seeing right now with all this stuff going on um, in the Senate about like critical race theory and how afraid, honestly, conservatives are of what would happen if these ideas about race were taught at an early age. And I think it shows just how important it is based on how afraid they are of what might happen if that were to be our reality and if people were able to grow up with that knowledge. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, like literally I was just, I was just watching some uh, like clips of Katanji Brown Jackson's hearing where like Ted Cruz has the poster behind him. And he's like, do you think babies are racist because of the anti anti racist baby? Yeah. And it's just, it is so crazy. And like, I, I was going to tell you about this, but like, I was actually in Minnesota last week, like in rural Minnesota and I was speaking at a college and I was visiting with some of their like East Asian studies departments and there were no Asian professors. And I was speaking in a class about Japanese women writers taught by like a white man who was simultaneously teaching um, classes about anime and was like very much kind of like glorifying that. And I think it kind of like brought up for me too, which is like, it also really matters when we talk about like the education system and like implementing these things. Like one, it, it begs this question, like, why is it so controversial? And like, let's really get to the bottom of that. But also like, who's teaching these things, right? And like, whose writings are we really learning from, you know, when we talk about Black and Asian solidarity, right? And like- Or when we talk about being Asian in general. Yeah, yeah, being Asian in general. And I mean, I also think of the Chinese Exclusion Act and like even railroad, the history of like railroads and, you know, Chinese immigrants coming over. And like, I think a lot about how that was taught in schools and how it was maybe like one unit, like, or not even one unit, like one, a small part of the unit, you know, that was really about the railroad and the picture, you know, the kind of the big picture that's official picture that celebrates the railroad, Pacific Railroad is like no Chinese people in the photo. And like, there's so much packed into this around like how this this these conversations can happen within schools too. Yeah. I don't know if you saw, but descendants of railroad workers recreated that photo recently in the past few years. It was to commemorate, uh, I can't remember the exact year of the yeah. anniversary, but it was a really significant anniversary and descendants all got together and recreated that photo with all Chinese descendants. Like that's so powerful. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and it's just like what, to be able to have these conversations earlier on is I think so necessary. Um, Okay, so the last person on your shirt is... So the last person is Ninochka Roska, who is a Filipino writer and activist, another anti-war activist. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely need to do more research on her and read her writings, but I'm really excited to, to be able to do that. And um, yeah, the shirt is really awesome and my mom got it for me. And I think it's such a good reminder that, you know, we have these leaders and we may not have always like been taught a lot about them. Like I definitely was not taught about Ninochka, but I'm excited to, to learn more about her and her work. Yeah. I think that what's really powerful also about like, I'm so glad you wore this shirt too, because I think that when I grew up, I thought a lot about how the stereotypes around Asian women. And like, I grew up with this kind of rhetoric of like, everyone's going to think you're submissive and quiet and that you're not really passionate about these things. And like, I think growing up, I thought like, oh, I don't really have role models, right? Like if I look in public media, it's like Lucy Liu in Charlie's Angels. But I didn't really feel like I grew up with role models. And I think that a lot of it is my own, like just not being exposed to it of like, I look back and if I had known about these names, 
like growing up with Grace Lee Boggs, Yuri Kochiyama, Ninochka Ruska as like, no, I do have role models. Like there are role models in American history mm-hmm. who are some of the greatest, you know, academic thought leaders around race, war, all of these things, which are still relevant. To- like we're literally seeing a war happen right now in Ukraine. And yeah, I just think it's important to like do our own learning in this, but also like push for that, this education reform, which is so necessary. Yeah. And as people, I mean, obviously you have a way bigger platform than me, but like people with um, platforms and, you know, in positions to tell stories and share information, it's also something that, um, you know, we can do to to talk about this and to make sure that other people have the opportunity and just the door open a little bit to learn about all this part of our history. Yeah. Um, just to kind of end off on like a positive note or like advice. Um, I'm curious if you have any, anything you would want to tell, like we have a lot of young Asian American female listeners, like what would you tell them in this moment of like feeling unsafe and maybe feeling like they can't talk about these sorts of things? I would say journal about it because like you were saying, uh, Okay, I would say journal about it and try to find friends that you can talk to about it. And even if it's, um, you know, if you have Asian, other Asian female friends, like just be the one to open up the door to that conversation. But even your non-Asian friends, I think it's really important for them to understand what's going on now too. So if you feel safe and comfortable doing it, bring it up and, and see how they respond. Like if you ever feel safe, uh, if you ever feel unsafe, you know, when you're going home, try asking for help. Like, I think it's really healing for us as Asian women to learn how to ask for help, because I think, you know, you were talking about this stereotype of us being, being submissive, being, um, you know, all those things. And I think sometimes because of that, we try to form our identity as the antithesis of that, as the opposite, but that's still, that's still letting a stereotype dictate our life. Yeah. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently of like, because of that stereotype of, oh, we're submissive. Oh, we need, you know, maybe need help for like everything. Most of the Asian women in my life that I can think of do so much just by themselves and don't really know how to ask for help. And I think that's a thing across women of color in general. Mm -hmm. So I think it can be really healing for us to learn how to ask for help and ask for support from the community around us. So I think um, that's something that we should try practicing in this time when our safety is at risk of like asking people around us for help and talking about what's going on. And also to your point earlier of being like, Oh, you know, these, these, um, the things that happened to you weren't so intense. And even me saying that too, it's like, I think it's also really important to remember that we deserve to feel safe at all times. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think maybe there's never been a time that we felt that way, but that's still what we deserve. That's what every human deserves Mm -hmm. to be able to walk around regardless of the time, regardless of what they're wearing and feel safe in their body. Like no one's going to harm them. No one's going to hurt them, whether that be, you know, emotional or physical. And so I think it's also really important for us and ourselves not to minimize what we're going through. Like, I think that can be a coping mechanism. And if you have to do that at times, you know, that's fine, but this is a lot and it's really hard. And I think just letting ourselves feel that sometimes and understanding that this is not how it should be. And we can work together to make it so that this is not the reality anymore, but not losing sight of you know, even if it's a little comment, even if it's a little like moving away, like that should not be happening. We don't deserve that. Yeah. I would echo all of that. And I would also say like for 
our listeners out there who like maybe the names that we talked about today are the first time you're hearing of these names or some of the concepts around even white supremacy, model minority myth. Like, I think that for me, it was, it was really healing for me to like release shame that I didn't know a lot of these things and be Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, I, I maybe I should have done my own proactive research, but also like the system should have taught me this. Like my education should have taught me this. And I think for me, it was really important in my own journey of like releasing shame that I didn't know it. And instead channeling like my desire to know these things into actual action and research and documentaries. And there's so many educational materials out there. And as Jelena said, like there are documentary documentarians like, like yourself who are completely devoted to telling these stories. And so I would just urge people, like if some of the concepts you're hearing today are new to you, like go do your research, like start looking into some of these things. I'll make sure we share some on the Tigris page too. Yeah. But like, these are all things that I think, you know, there are educational resources out there and to not be too hard on yourself for not knowing these things or not having these conversations, but just really using this as like a jumping off point. Yeah. And there's the historical people, but there's also people present day like Mm -hmm. you, like there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of Asian activists out here that are, you know, working on the ground today. So just like we have the ancestors that we can, you know, draw inspiration from, there's also people that are active right now Mm -hmm. that you can follow, you can tune in with, and that's how you can, you know, learn about things that are happening now. And organizations you can support who are like doing on the ground work on this. But yeah, I mean, we just hope everybody out there is feeling safe. And again, I think for me, it was like, unfortunately, a really surprising question from Jelena literally this week of like, how are you feeling? How are you feeling safe? And I think that to your point, like part of our act of resistance and taking care of each other is also just checking in with each other. So with that, I hope all of you are feeling safe and I hope all of you are finding your own outlets to heal and feel safe. And um, again, thank you so much to our incredible team at DCP for even giving us the space to have these important conversations. And we will talk to you next week. Bye, y'all. Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis, The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old school greats and new school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.